Hi, my name is Jill, and the Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 17, 41 through 47. The Philistine got closer and closer to David, and his shield bearer was in front of him. When the Philistine looked David over, he sneered at David because he was just a boy, reddish-brown and good-looking. The Philistine asked David, Am I some sort of dog that you come at me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said to David, and I'll feed your flesh to the wild birds and the wild animals. But David told the Philistine, You are coming against me with sword, spear, and scimitar. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel's army, the one you have insulted. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will feed your dead body and the dead bodies of the entire Philistine camp to the wild birds and the wild animals. Then the whole world will know that there is a God on Israel's side. And all those gathered here will know that the Lord doesn't save by means of sword and spear. The Lord owns this war, and he will hand all of you over to us. The reader, the, the word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Mary. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day, and after you have done everything possible, to still stand. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Sarah. Thank you for standing as you are able for the gospel reading found in Luke 6, verses 22 and 23, and also verses 27 through 31. Happy are you when people hate you, reject you, insult you, and condemn your name as evil because of the human one. Rejoice when that happens. Leap for joy because you have a great reward in heaven. Their ancestors did the same things to the prophets. In verses 27 through 31. But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks, and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here. That by your gracious invitation, you said, come, come to me, come and worship. And then when we gather together, you speak. You are the God who speaks to us through song, through your word, through one another, through the sacraments. And so we pray today that you would just help us to hear. Would you give us, your people, ears to hear? 
uh, what it is that you want to speak to us today. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's great to see you on this snowy Sunday morning. Thank you for everybody who was able to make it down today. I want to say a special thanks to everybody who's watching online, knowing that there may be more today uh, because of the weather. So we miss you and hope to see you back here uh, next week at Palmer. Uh, My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here. Our lead pastor, Glenn Packiam, is over in England. So he preached about eight or nine hours ago or something like that uh, and is hopefully resting up. And I get a chance to be here with you this morning on this, the first Sunday in March which means for sports fans that March Madness is this close. I mean, it's coming. And this is that time of year when everyone's like waiting to see, you know, what, who's going to be in the bracket, which teams are going to be seated where, and waiting to print off that bracket, and then pray for the gift of prophecy. Uh, that you can like predict what is going to be that upset that nobody else in your office pool sees coming, but out of divine inspiration, you suddenly know. Uh, I got a chance to actually be at one of those games one time back in 2005. My younger brother and I went to the first round of games in Oklahoma City uh, to watch his alma mater, University of Northern Iowa, lose to Wisconsin. But we stayed for the game too, and we got to see the Bucknell Bison ranked number 14 take down the Rockhawk Jayhawk of Kansas. And it was amazing. I don't like basketball. I don't play basketball. I don't follow basketball. If I watch Martin's Madness, it's like the first two weeks. And when the upsets are done, I'm done. Like I, but being there, I could do nothing but cheer with every ounce of my being for Bucknell. I don't even know where they are. Like, where this school is, I know nothing about them. But to cheer for 14 verses 3, it's something about that that gets in our bones. We love a good upset. Unless, of course, it's our team that's on the losing end of that. Uh, Then I'm sure it's the ref's fault and not ours. Um, But we want to cheer for the underdog. And I think there's nothing more that we cheer or champion or celebrate than when we see good overcome evil especially when we see good overcoming evil when it seems like there's no hope. It seems like it's against all odds. It seems like this is never going to happen. And then we see it and something deep inside of us just screams with joy. We're in the middle of a sermon series right now called Kingdom and Chaos as we're walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And as we've been walking through this, we're seeing that this is really the story of Israel as they transition from this tribal confederation, this loosely knit group of 12 tribes into a united monarchy, that they have a king and the kingdom is established. But all throughout the way, we see that the tension in the text is about the question of how is it that Israel's kings are going to relate to the true king? How is it that they are going to relate to Yahweh and to his kingdom? And what we see throughout the Old Testament, actually, is that when the people of God submit to the reign and the rule and the kingdom of God, peace takes place. But when we rebel against it, when we say, no, we're going to do this our own way, that chaos ensues. And we've actually seen a lot of that over the last couple of weeks as Israel's first king, Saul, gets anointed to reign and then immediately begins to misuse his authority. And as a result of his failed leadership, he's rejected as king. And so Samuel the prophet goes and finds this young shepherd boy named David and anoints him as king. Now we have two anointed ones. 
And this tension that begins to play out in the text is Saul continues to reign, but there's a new king in the midst, that there's David waiting in the wings. And over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to see is how Saul's uh, reign just begins to fall and collapse around him while David rises. And that begins really with the passage that we're going to look at today, 1 Samuel 17, as we look at the epic battle between David and Goliath, which was probably 97% of us our favorite kids like story when we were in kids ministry, right? There's something about this story. We're like, yes, David, the shepherd boy, taking down this great warrior. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 1. We read this. It said, the Philistines assembled their troops for war at Soko of Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah at Ephes Damim. And Saul and the Israelite army assembled and camped in the Ela Valley, where they, organized, they got organized to fight the Philistines. The Philistines took positions on one hill, while Israel took position on the opposite hill, and the valley was there between them. This story is set in this contested sort of lowland, borderland area between the Philistine-controlled areas on the coast and Israel's controlled areas in the hill country. It looks a little bit like this. This is a picture of the Valley of Elah. And this area of the country is marked by these low, lowing hills and these deep, rich, fertile valleys. It's prime agricultural land. And so it's con continually contested throughout the scriptures as the land that God gave to or that Yahweh gave to Israel, but the Philistines and others are continually trying to take because it's rich and it's lush and it's valuable for all kinds of things. So we're set here with the Philistines camped on one side and the Israelites camped on the other. And as the story continues, we see that a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. And he was more than nine feet tall. The Hebrew text puts him at nine feet nine. The uh, Greek text put him at six feet nine. Either way, the dude is really tall. He's massive. So he comes out, and not only is he massive, but he had a bronze helmet on his head and more bronze scale armor, weighing 125 pounds. You thought your winter jacket was heavy this morning, right? This is what he's covered in. And he had bronze plates on his shins and a bronze scimitar hanging on his back, this huge sword. And his spear shaft was as strong as the bar on a weaver's loom and it's iron head. Notice it was all bronze and he's got this thing of iron. This time period was this transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And so he's got state-of-the-art weaponry. He's got weapons that nobody else has. And it weighed 15 pounds and his shield bearer walked in front of him. So we've got this guy. He's massive. He's incredibly tall. He's well-protected and he's well armed. He's covered in all of this bronze armor, carrying the latest tech. If he's a football player, he's got stickers all over his helmet. I mean, this is the most feared person in the whole Philistine army. And he comes out and he just starts insulting the Israelites. He comes out, he insults them, and then he issues a challenge. He says, hey, send me your best guy. Me versus whoever you want. 
Let's do this. Don't get, we don't need to send the whole armies in. Just send me whoever you think can take me. Let's do this one-on-one, man-to-man. Show me what you got. Bring it. It's smackdown time. This is what he's asking for. He's saying, hey, let this happen. And so the question of the text, of course, should be, well, what's Saul going to do? Saul's the king, right? Saul's the one that Israel asked for so that they could have a king who would fight their battles. That's why they wanted a king in the first place. And not only that, but they chose Saul because Saul is tall. The one who most looks like Goliath in all of Israel would be Saul, the tall guy. Like, send him out, the king, who's probably got the best armor and best weaponry anyway for all of Israel. What is he going to do? And we actually don't have to wait long for an answer. The very next verse, verse 11, a couple verses down, says this. When Saul and all Israel heard what the Philistines said, they were distressed and terrified. Terrified. Saul's like, okay, I'll be back in a little while. And runs back behind the lines. So, of course, the next question should be like, well, wait a minute. There's another guy. There's another king. What will David do in contrast to Saul? And what I want us to consider as we're looking through this passage this morning is what should we do? That when we see the enemy encroaching, how is it that we should respond? That how do we as the people of God, resist evil in our world today. What can we learn from this story as we see David's response to encroaching evil? What can it teach us about how we, as the people of God, go about combating evil as it's encroaching in our world? At this time, David is going back and forth between taking care of his dad's sheep and going and taking care of Saul in, uh, for and his palace and dealing with all of his stuff. But at one point when he's back with his dad, his dad commissions him and says, hey, I need you to take some supplies from here to the front lines where your brothers are part of Israel's army. So his three oldest brothers are there. And so David says, yeah, sure, I'll take it. And he takes these supplies and he goes to where Israel's encamped. And right as he arrives, Goliath comes out again. This guy is coming out day after day after day doing the same thing. So he comes out, and this is what we read this time, verse 24. It says, when the Israelites saw Goliath, every one of them ran away, terrified of him. They're just looking at me like, nope, I'm out. And then, but they have this sort of comment here. Now the Israelite soldiers, though, had been saying to each other, do you see this man that comes out? I mean, do you see how big this guy is? Do you see how armed and protected this guy is? How he comes out and he's just insulting us? Can you believe this? But, you know, but by the way, the king will reward with great riches whoever kills this man. I mean, the king's not going to do it. But whoever, you know, is brave enough to go and try and wins... Give him great riches. And the king will even give him his own daughter, make him part of the royal family and make his household exempt from taxes. You know, it's that time of year. You're like, yes, thank you. But no one signs up, right? So David looks around. He's asked the soldier standing by him. He's like, wait a minute, what did you say? What will be done for the person who kills that Philistine over there and removes this insult from Israel? Now listen to what he says here. He says, who is that uncircumcised Philistine 
anyway that he can get away with insulting the army of the living God. See, when Saul and the other soldiers see Goliath, they're terrified. And they just simply run away. They see him. They see this intimidating, menacing, massive, experienced, decked out warrior. They hear him insulting them. And then they look at themselves and they're like, nope. This guy wants to go one-on-one with somebody. It's not me. I don't match up. I see him. I see all that he brings. I hear what he's saying. And what he's saying about me is actually true. They buy into Goliath's words. And they run away terrified. He's a classic bully. He's bigger, stronger, meaner, and more convincing than anybody else. Right? For those of us who experienced that in elementary school, we know what that's like. I remember when my family was going through a hard time in elementary school, my mom was in and out of the hospital a lot. And so the school counselor was trying to make sure that I was okay. So I remember going and talking to the school counselor and I came back and the bully in our class had found out that I'd gone to the counselor. And he let me have it. I mean, I walked away from that conversation feeling like I was weak, feeling ashamed that there was, and, I, and to this day, like, there's moments when I know that I need help, when I know I need to go see a counselor or a mentor or a director of some kind, that his words still ring in my ear, you know? And the truth is, it actually takes great strength to go and get the help that we need. But a bully will get us to convince things about our, get us, convince us to believe things about ourselves that is not true. That's inherently what they do. And this is exactly what the Israelites are experiencing. They're experiencing this in this moment, but look how David responds. See, what the difference is with David is that David sees what the others don't, so he can respond how the others can't. David sees what the others don't, so that he can respond how others can't. You notice that the Saul and all the soldiers continue to refer to him as this man, the man that stands between, in some of the translations that might say, the champion, look at that man. And David instead calls him, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? He says, this guy's just like anybody else. It's just like any other person who's outside of the people of God and Who is he anyway? Not only that, but the soldiers in Saul talk about Goliath coming and insulting them, defying Israel. And instead, David says, who's this guy that he would come out and defy the living God? See, David reframes the entire situation so that when David looks at Goliath, he doesn't see this menacing, intimidating, overwhelming kind of warrior. He sees an uncircumcised Philistine, somebody who's outside of relationship with God, outside of the people of God. It's like, who's this guy? And when he hears Goliath saying, uh, hear him insulting, he doesn't think, oh, this isn't about me. He says, he's insulting God. So instead of looking at himself and being like, I don't match up, he looks at Goliath, he looks at God, he's like, you got this. He sees something entirely different happening so that he can respond in an entirely different way. He sees, looks to God, and is able to respond with faith rather than fear. His confidence is not in his own abilities, but in God's ability, recognizing who's on his side. One of our greatest challenges in the world today is to see evil clearly. It's getting harder and harder and harder 
to see evil clearly, to name it correctly, and respond faithfully. This is getting incredibly hard, especially when the battle lines are unclear and they're complicated. We're not sure like what's all going on. We're getting different perspectives and different reports and this news thing and this news thing and this person and that person. And we're going, what is really going on here? At times, we're not even really sure who the enemy is, right? This is actually Satan's greatest strategy. His greatest strategy is to convince us that he doesn't exist and that evil is something other than what it is to get us to think in a different way. This was our New Testament passage. New Testament passage said, you know, be careful to stand against the tricks of the enemy. It says this, because we aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. It says that we are in the midst of a struggle against a very, very, very crafty enemy. Our fight is actually against cosmic spiritual forces, these things that kind of lurk behind every evil in the world, that lurk behind oppressive systems and structures and philosophies and empires, things that oppress and perpetuate injustice. And Satan's strategy is to get us to think that people are the problem and not him. The problem is human enemies and not the forces that are at work behind all of them. This is to think that people are our problem. See, the real problem in my life right now, it's my spouse. The real problem in my life right now, it's my boss. It's my coworker. It's my neighbor. It's my friend. It's Democrats or it's Republicans, depending upon which side of the aisle you're sitting on today. It's blacks or it's whites. It's men or it's women. It's rich or it's the poor. And never once are we talking about the forces that are lying behind the things that are bringing about oppression and evil in the world. Getting us to think that other people are our problem. That our problem is the other. The one who is not like us. The problem is them. It's one of the great strategies of the enemy. In fact, it even happens in the context of the church. The very subtle way that it starts, I think, is when we start talking about the church as an it or a them rather than an us, rather than a we. Oh, it's, you know, it's the church. It's it. It's those people. Rather than recognize, no, the church is a we. The church is me. The church is us. The church is this family across history and across time. This is the church, and we're a part of it. This is our family. So, what are we doing and how are we going to respond in the middle of it? So what the enemy really wants to do is distort our vision however he can. So I love that song that we were just singing, God, give us vision. Just see things like you do. We need vision because if we don't see clearly, we won't respond rightly. And in fact, most of the time, in some cases, we won't even respond at all. That will sort of like Saul and the soldiers will just run away in fear. We just be kind of immobilized. Or in other cases, we won't respond kind of out of indifference. Not that it doesn't really impact me. That's really not that big of a deal. That's not really that important. And so we just sort of in indifference go back to our places of comfort. But we're called as the people of God to accurately see 
and actively resist evil in all of its forms in the world, both on the systemic level and on the personal level. We're supposed to be the people that look at things like racism and human trafficking and child abuse and domestic violence and economic injustice and and on all forms of sexual exploitation and say no, 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 no. And to actively stand and resist those things and do the same thing with pride and lust and greed and anger and do the same thing with that. Say no, that is not going to mark our life as the people of God. So what happens is too often we're interested in one kind of evil or the other, right? We want to say no to these things, but yeah, you know, push this way or vice versa. We want to condemn and resist, you know, systemic evil or individual sin, but not both. So we do that as we amplify one evil while minimizing, justifying, or even renaming others to make them more palatable to us. We do this especially when we see it in ourselves. Right? We take that hard look and we see something in us. This is actually, I think, one of the great gifts of the season of Lent. Is the season of Lent creates this space for us where we say to God, God, help us to see ourselves clearly. Help us to know what it is that's going on in our own hearts. And then when we see those things, we repent of them. Say, God, help us to change. Help us to be a people that are different, that live differently, that see differently, that respond differently. Help us, God, to see things like you do, to change the course in the direction of our lives because that invitation from the Spirit. It goes on, the text is this, starting in verse 31. It says, the things David had said were overheard and reported to Saul, you know, who's way back somewhere. And he said for him, he said, hey, send the boy here. And David comes and he says, don't let anyone lose courage because of this Philistine. I, your servant, will go and fight him. I'll be that guy. Well, you stay back here and do whatever, Saul. And look at what Saul says. He says, you can't go out and fight this Philistine. So I answered, David, you're still a boy. But he's been a warrior since he was a boy. See, Saul's still seeing the same thing. He looks at David and he looks at Goliath. He's like, you don't match up. You're just a boy. He's been fighting longer than you've been alive. You don't stand a chance. But then David goes and he starts recounting his victories over lions and bears. Uh, Apparently, shepherding in Israel is like trail running in Colorado. You gotta be ready for anything. So he goes and he recounts this whole thing. And Saul finally is like, sure, you can do this. But look what he does. Then Saul dressed David in his own gear, putting a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David strapped his sword over the armor, but he couldn't walk around well because he never tried it before. He said, I can't walk in this, David told Saul, because I've never tried it before. So he took him off. He then grabbed his staff and chose five smooth stones from the stream bed, and he put them in the pocket of his shepherd's bag, and with sling in hand, he went out to fight the Philistine. See, from Saul's point of view, David is going to have to engage in close hand-to-hand combat with Goliath. He's going to have to be in Goliath's grill in order to win this fight. And he looks at this boy, and he's like, this boy doesn't have any hope if he's not armed and protected like Goliath. So he does everything he can to give 
David the same things that Goliath already has. He thinks he has to match strength with strength, power with power. That that's the only way to win this victory. The amazing thing about David is that David refuses to fight Goliath on Goliath's terms. He refuses. Contrary to all the popular explanations, Saul's armor actually fits David. The problem is not that it doesn't fit. It's heavy and it's unfamiliar. He can't move around. So he picks up his more battle-tested stuff, you know, a shepherd's staff and a sling, and goes out into battle against this well-armed, well-trained person. And you have to admit, at this point, you've got to be like, David, what are you doing? You seem foolish. Like, you've committed a classic blunder here. The first is which is never to go to a land war in Asia. And the second, which is slightly less known, is never get into a battle with the Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> what are you doing? David! He looks weak and he looks foolish. But if we know one thing from the scriptures, is that there's incredible power in weakness. There's incredible power in weakness. See, we think that David's kind of going out with, you know, like a kid's toy. But in the ancient world, trained slingers could hurl a rock at over 100 miles an hour. And judges says, and hit a target within a hair's breadth. These guys are like major league pitchers with rocks. Right? I don't know if you remember that, that video that one time of Randy Johnson, who was like this six foot ten Goliath-like pitcher uh, who threw like high 90s, low 100 mile an hour, and he's pitching a ball one time, and a bird comes and flies in, and the two happen to meet, like just, I mean, he's trying to throw to the catcher, and a bird comes in, and all you see is feathers. <laughs> I mean, just, the bird just blows up. David's this is intense. He can hurl this thing. So instead of fighting strength with strength, he fights strength with speed. Instead of engaging in fighting up close, he fights from a distance. He refuses to fight on Goliath's terms. And likewise, we can't fight evil with evil. We can't fight evil on evil's terms. Paul puts it this way. He says, don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. Defeat evil with good. Rosa Parks, John Perkins, Martin Luther King Jr., they knew this. They knew that they couldn't fight racism with racism. They couldn't fight injustice with injustice. They couldn't fight violence with violence. If they did, they knew that they would lose. So instead... They adopted all the unconventional, unexpected, brilliant, and beautiful means of waging war that they could. They preached, and they prayed, they worshiped, and they fasted, they boycotted buses and businesses, they lobbied, and they loved. They loved even their enemies, those who persecuted them, insulted them, stabbed them, and even bombed their homes. They loved them. And they persisted in that they demonstrated power through what other people's called weakness, through what other people called foolishness. And we see this no more clearly than we do on the cross. 
This is the most powerful example of this, is Jesus was being arrested and beaten and mocked and crucified. As he is taking on the onslaught of every evil that could, everything that evil could possibly give, think about what he does. He takes care of his mother. He forgives a thief who's being crucified next to him and welcomes him into paradise. He looks down at those who are tormenting him and he forgives them. He finishes what the Father gave him to do without ever resorting to evil. And he trusted God the whole time. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He overcame evil with profound love, with profound sacrifice. He entrusted his, himself to the Father. This is why Paul describes the gospel as foolishness. It says, we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. This is because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And it doesn't make sense. This is why C.S. Lewis called it deeper magic. You know, it's deeper it's more beautiful, it's more profound, and it is ultimately stronger than anything that evil can give. We are in a fight. We fight in a different way and with different weapons. We do not overcome evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. This is why Jesus calls us to pray for those who persecute us, right? To love our enemies and all the things that we saw in the gospel passage. We go on in 1 Samuel 17, 43. David then kind of goes out and he approaches Goliath. And Goliath begins to like, what are you doing out here? You're coming to me with sticks. And he starts insulting him and saying all the things he's going to do. And David responds this way. But David told the Philistine, you're coming against me with sword and spear and scimitar. But I come against you in the name of the Lord of the heavenly forces, the God of Israel's army, the one you've insulted. And today the Lord will hand you over to me. I will strike you down and cut off your head. It gets really gross here for a little bit. And today I will feed your dead body and the dead bodies of the entire Philistine camp to the wild birds and the wild animals. And then the whole world will know that there is a God on Israel's side. And all those gathered here will know that the Lord does not save by means of sword and spear. He doesn't save in the traditional ways. But the Lord owns this war, and he will hand all of you over to us. See, David not only sees what others see so they can respond how others can't. David not only refuses to fight evil on evil's terms, but David ultimately knows whose the battle is. David knows whose battle this is. Goliath is not defying him. He's defying God. It will not be David that defeats Goliath. It will be God that defeats him. David participates what he does matters, it's significant, but it's not ultimate. David's not the preeminent one on the battlefield. It's the Lord who is fighting with and in and through David. The battle is ultimately the Lord's. And so are all the battles that we face. The battles are his. David knows that the Lord is the one 
you will save. And see, when we come into worship on Sundays, we know that we've been engaged in battles all week. That there are things that we're all facing as we're walking through life. And for some of us, it feel like we're in a battle for our marriage. Or we're in a battle for even our kids, maybe in our kids' lives. And feel the intensity of that struggle. Or maybe you're in the midst of a battle where you see a friend going down a path that you know is only going to lead to destruction. And you feel like you're just fighting for the sake of that friend. Or maybe you're in the middle of a, just an unhealthy you know, set of relationships or an unhealthy workplace and you feel like you're the only one who's standing up and saying, no, stop. Or you feel called into some of the dark places of the world and feel like God has placed you there and it can feel so unbelievably alone to find ourselves in those places, to be facing the battles that we do. And it's so easy for us to kind of look at those things and then look at ourselves they say, I don't have it. Can't do this. And to come in and feel weak and weary and overwhelmed and feel like I'm just going to give up. I can't do it anymore. I'm just too tired. And one of the reasons it's so critical for us to come into these moments is we're reminded that we're not alone. That we've actually been placed in a family. And to come into a place and to have our entire life struggle be reframed for us. To come into this place and say, oh, wait a minute. That this thing that I care about, this thing that I see, this thing that I'm passionate about, this thing that I'm desperate for victory or salvation is, God is even more desperate for that than I am. Now, I am not alone in the midst of this struggle, but he is right there with me. This battle is not mine. This is not about me matching up to that. It's about how that matches up to him. So I reframe it and I go, okay, yes, I have the strength that I need to continue in my own weakness, knowing that in my weakness, God is strong. And to continue to fight with the weapons that we have, prayer and fasting and worship and truth-telling and confession and everything else that we can possibly bring to bear on this situation because we know it is the Spirit of God who's at work in the middle of that. We come in and remember that we are not alone and our battle is not ours. Our battle is His. And we not only come to remember that, but we remember that He's actually already won. That's why we come to the table. It's why we have a cross right in the middle of our stage. Because we come in every week and we remember, oh yes, I'm not fighting alone. And that this is not unwinnable. In fact, the battle has already been won. And we're waiting to see it come to its completion. But every evil in the world and every evil that we could ever experience was defeated that day on that cross. As Jesus took all of it in on himself, never resorting to evil in the process. He took everything that evil had to offer, sacrificed himself, but that was not the end of the story. And the story is three days later, he was raised from the dead. That he defeated sin and death and hell and the grave. And our enemy himself has been defeated. And then he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father where he reigns over everything. Just as the team led us this morning in singing that song, Hallelujah, our God 
reigns, that all of these battles are underneath his reign, and someday Jesus will come again, and all of the enemies that have already been defeated will ultimately be destroyed. And that's our great hope. And so we come to the table, and we say, God, remind us again. Help us to see what you see, so we can respond the only way that you can teach us how. And help us not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Teach us to fight this war in your way with your weapons. And remind us when we feel discouraged and defeated that the battle is not ours, it's yours. Comfort us when we feel alone and remind us that you're the one who fights for us. Thank you for joining us today at New Life Downtown. You can return to our website at newlifechurch.org downtown to find out more about the church and how you can get connected. You can email us with any questions that you have. We look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Feel free to follow us on social media as well. We're ready to welcome you into the family of God at New Life Downtown.